On May 13, 1981, four gunshots rang out in the Vatican Square. Their primary target, Pope John Paul II, was hit in his arm, hand, and abdomen. Two bystanders were also hit. As the victims were taken away for emergency treatment, the gunman was set upon by the crowd in the square before being arrested. He was soon identified as Mehmet Ali Aja. Naturally, everyone needed to know why and how Aja did this. But more important than asking, what is the truth, is asking, how do we decide what the truth is? And how do we report on these events when empirical truth is not readily available? This is We Read Theory. Welcome to the first of a set of bonus episodes on Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. In episode 5 of We Read Theory, Alex and I went over Herman and Chomsky's propaganda model of the mass media and the various filters it imposes on the spread of information. We also discussed how this model accurately predicts the coverage of elections in the Central American nations of El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua. This time, it's just me, and I'm going to be covering the next section of Manufacturing Consent, the KGB Bulgarian plot to assassinate the Pope. If you haven't yet listened to our previous episode on this work and want an in-depth explanation of the propaganda model, consider checking it out. However, for those of us who just need a quick refresher, I'll briefly summarize the five filters and explain how they affect which stories make it to the front pages and primetime TV slots. Filter 1. Major media outlets are businesses, and as such, exist only so long as they can create wealth for those who own them. Media outlets do business by running stories, so which stories are run will ultimately come down to which stories are most likely to accomplish this goal. Filter 2. In order to stay profitable, most media outlets rely on advertising. Those who purchase advertising space are also businesses run for profit, and as such will only agree to fund a news operation as long as it conducts business in a way that's likely to net them increased profits. Filter 3. All media outlets rely on outside sourcing in some way. The kind of investigation and data collection necessary to run a story on a major news network is highly resource-intensive. For this reason, sources that are assumed to be trustworthy tend to be organizations where large amounts of financial resources are concentrated, such as governments, corporations, and think tanks. Filter 4. Just as it takes a lot of money to produce trustworthy news, it likewise takes a lot of money to produce trustworthy criticism of news. This criticism is called flack, and media outlets need to avoid flack if they're to maintain their reputations as honest and objective. For this reason, the same organizations that media outlets tend to rely on as sources can still influence the decisions of an outlet that's publicly funded, sells no ad space, and conducts all of its investigations in-house. Filter 5. Anti-communism. But I generally consider this to be more of an amalgam of the previous four than a filter in and of itself, as a story that paints a communist government in a positive light would inherently fail to pass through the first four filters. The underlying pattern through these filters is that any story on its journey from the writer's desk to the front page must be approved by some section of the economic elite. As a result, the diversity of thought we see in our major media outlets only reflects the diversity of thought found between members of the economic ruling class rather than the population at large. I want you to keep these points in mind as we take a look at the coverage of this attempted assassination and the investigations that followed. On May 14, 1981, the day following the assassination attempt, the New York Times ran a story by Henry Tanner reporting the basic facts of the event. Among a recounting of the attempt and a description of the Pope's condition, the articles included a list of details about Aja and his past. 
If you were to learn of the assassination attempt through this article, you would come away knowing that Aja had previously assassinated the editor of the Turkish newspaper Milliyet, Abdi Ipeki, in 1979. You would know that he was imprisoned for this, but escaped later that year, following which Aja penned a letter claiming that he intended to kill the Pope in the name of Islam during his upcoming visit to Ankara. You would also know that Aja had been arrested with a note in his pocket that read, I am killing the Pope as a protest against the imperialism of the Soviet Union and the United States against the genocide that is being carried out in El Salvador and Afghanistan. Based on this, you'd likely come to the conclusion that Aja was a religious radical, not aligned with the East or West. If Aja had had any help, it was probably from others with similar views. If you were particularly curious and went digging for further information on Aja's background, you might find that his accomplice in Epeki's assassination was a member of the Grey Wolves, a far-right paramilitary group based in Turkey. You might also find that the Grey Wolves were responsible for his escape from prison, and that Epeki was a respected voice for the secular center-left in Turkish news media. All of this would likely further solidify the conclusion that Aja was a far-right extremist who associated with other far-right extremists. Only five days following the assassination attempt, the Italian secret service agency SISMI had released forged documents which claimed that a Soviet official had announced the plot ahead of time, thereby implicating the Soviet Union as the mastermind behind it, but this line was not picked up in the American media. In 1982, two things happened that fundamentally rerouted the coverage of the investigation in American media. In September, the Reader's Digest published an exclusive report penned by Claire Sterling, assisted in her investigation by Paul Hentz. Sterling was an American-born journalist who had been living and working in Italy for three decades prior to the assassination attempt, hence an ex-CIA officer. The Reader's Digest article formed the basis of what Herman and Chomsky dubbed the Sterling-Hence-Kalb, or SHK model, Kalb referring to Marvin Kalb, who narrated an NBC TV program shortly after the release of the Reader's Digest article, which pushed the same basic narrative. The narrative was one that implicated neither Aja himself nor Turkish fascists as the mastermind of the operation. Instead, the SHK model laid the blame squarely at the feet of the Bulgarian secret police and, by extension, the KGB and Soviet Union. What was the evidence for this claim? Aja had initially claimed to have worked alone, but conditions of the assassination attempt suggested otherwise. First, two potential accomplices were spotted at the time of the event in St. Peter's Square. One of these was identified as Omar A., who was found to have received a fake passport at the same time as Aja from the same Turkish counterfeiter. We discussed earlier Aja had been found with multiple notes in his pocket. One of these included a list of instructions which Aja seems to have followed. Frankly, for someone who spent as much of his life directly involved with extreme political organizations as Aja, the idea that he had organizational support for this mission seems pretty intuitive. This only gets us halfway there, though. Sterling isn't just arguing that Aja had help. She's arguing that it was the Bulgarian government specifically that supplied his orders. The cornerstone of this connection is found in Aja's stay in Sofia, the Bulgarian capital, in the time between his break from Turkish prison and his attempt on the Pope's life. Now, Aja did stay in the Bulgarian capital for somewhere between 40 and 50 days. But how does Sterling prove that he was in contact with Bulgarian agents, or that he received any orders from the Bulgarian intelligence during this time? Well, she doesn't. The crux of her case rests on a series of ideological assumptions, chief among them being the double assumption that 1. Due to the totalitarian nature of the Bulgarian government, Aja could not have passed through the country without the knowledge of Bulgarian intelligence, and two, Aja's notoriety means that he would not have been allowed to pass through the country unless the Bulgarians specifically wanted him to for some reason. Since he did in fact pass through Bulgaria on his way to try to kill the Pope, the Bulgarians must have ordered him to kill the Pope themselves. Now, besides the fact that Sterling claims of a Bulgarian connection are based entirely on ideological assumptions with no hard evidence, there are some problems with this model. Herman and Chomsky identify six major issues, but really these are six aspects of one major flaw. 
that there is no cohesive narrative that both implicates the Soviets and remains consistent with the facts. The facts of the case suggest that Aja already intended to kill the Pope before coming to Bulgaria, and Sterling herself never attempts to argue otherwise. This raises two major questions. Why and when was Aja recruited for the job? As we stated earlier, Aja had written a letter following his escape from prison in 1979 threatening to kill the Pope during his visit to Turkey. Any claim that the Soviets recruited Aja after 1979 would have to contend with the fact that Aja already had an established motive. So let's say he was recruited prior to the writing of the letter and that the letter was part of the plot. Well, why? Sterling argued in her article that the Soviet motive for killing the Pope was to combat the Solidarity Movement in Poland, but Solidarity didn't exist as any kind of credible threat to Soviet power in late 1979. This also ignores that anti-papal sentiment was widespread among the Turkish far right at the time. Okay, let's say Aja had his own motive, and that the Soviets took advantage of that fact and recruited him specifically to get the Pope out of the way, while leaving the blame with the Grey Wolves and the Turkish far right. Okay, that would explain why Aja moved exclusively through Grey Wolves' channels in his travels around Europe. It would also explain why he got his weapon from Horst Grillmeier, a former Nazi who specialized in supplying weapons to right-wingers. But hey, doesn't the cornerstone of the whole Bulgarian connection rest on Aja's stay in Sofia? If the whole point is to maintain plausible deniability, why have Aja come to Bulgaria at all? The second event occurred in November of 1982. Aja had previously claimed to have worked alone, then in May of 1982 claimed that a pair of Turkish mafiosos were truly behind the plot. Aja also claimed one of these men had helped him escape prison back in 1979. In November, however, Aja began singing a different tune when he implicated three Bulgarians as his accomplices. As a narrative, the Bulgarian connection had existed basically from the moment the shots rang out in St. Peter's Square, but until this point, it had hung in the air like a flammable gas waiting for a spark. Now that spark had come, but what do these new accusations actually add to the narrative? There was already a conflict within Sterling's narrative between the recruiting of a Turkish fascist to maintain plausible deniability and taking him to an Eastern Bloc capital for assignment. Three Bulgarian accomplices only exacerbates this conflict. Sure, these are circumstantial arguments, but the whole narrative is circumstantial anyway. The closest thing to hard evidence was Aja's description of the apartment of one of his supposed accomplices, Sergei Antonov. Aja also claimed to have met Antonov's wife at this time. Antonov was arrested shortly after his identification and interrogated, but his defense took issue with both of these claims. First, while Aja's description of his apartment was mostly true, it had one discrepancy which, while inaccurate for Antonov's own apartment, was accurate for other apartments in the same building. Antonov's wife was also shown to be out of the country at the time Aja claimed to have met her. Following the release of these contentions in June of 1983, Aja actually recanted his original claims. But here's the kicker. If Aja had never been to Antonov's apartment, how was he able to describe it at all? Whether his first claim made in November 1982 or his retraction in June 1983 is to be believed, the only possible explanation that ties the evidence together is that Aja was fed information while in prison. So, Claire Sterling writes an article making a baseless accusation filled with inconsistencies and ideological assumptions and provides no substantial evidence for her claims, and the Reader's Digest pushes it. So what? Bad articles come with the territory of a free press. Here's the problem, though. Sterling's article bolstered by these new accusations, became the center of gravity around which the entire coverage of the developing investigations orbited. Michael Dobbs wrote in a 1984 article for the Washington Post that the Bulgarian connection had become official as a result of the new confessions, and patterns in coverage of it seemed to confirm this. In 1982, the New York Times published four articles across all of September, October, and November detailing a possible Bulgarian connection. In December, there were 20. 
and in January another 15. According to Edward Herman in his 1986 book, The Rise and Fall of the Bulgarian Connection, this pattern held true for other major news sources such as Time, The Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and The Washington Post. Generally, coverage of the Bulgarian Connection admitted that Sterling's claims needed more evidence before they could be treated as fact. But the barrage of articles on the subject lent an air of legitimacy and reasonableness to a conspiracy theory that we've already shown deserved neither. And that's just the quote-unquote left-leaning mainstream media. Conservative journalists really did take the Bulgarian connection as fact. In an article for Maclean's magazine, Barbara Emile accuses the West writ large as intentionally denying the obvious truth of the Bulgarian connection so as to avoid conflict with the Eastern Bloc. The ideological assumptions of the SHK model, namely the impossibility of Aja passing through Bulgaria without the endorsement of its secret police, are hammered home. Michael Ledeen, in an article for Commentary magazine, accuses media sources and politicians who admit to the lack of hard proof of the connection of being soft on international terrorism. As a casual newsreader, this dialectic is likely to convince you that the Bulgarian connection was being undersold, if anything. But I don't want to overstate the importance of pieces like this. The main thrust of the propaganda campaign was in the general acceptance across the whole media sphere, with few exceptions, of the basic ideological premises of the SHK model. Sure, the necessary evidence isn't all there, but it sure does seem like the Bulgarians had to have some hand in it given how much time Aja spent in Bulgaria. Maybe we can't prove it, but hey, it's the KGB. Of course they would try to kill the Pope if it meant squashing an uprising in their backyard. The killer seems to have run in far-right circles his entire life, but... The Soviets are masters of spycraft, and a fascist would be the perfect cover to deny their own responsibility. Pair with that the widespread omission of many important but inconvenient facts, such as Aja's many retractions of his previous statements, as well as the uncovering of a widespread infiltration campaign of Italian intelligence agencies by fascists from the P2 Lodge. What would a more responsible media environment look like in response to all this? Herman and Chomsky outline what they call an alternative model to that of the SHK. I'm just going to quote directly from Manufacturing Consent, as this point is already explained more concisely there than I could hope to do myself. Quote, An alternative explanation of the Bulgarian connection can be derived from the questions the U.S. press would surely have raised if an analogous scenario had occurred in Moscow, in which Aja, who had briefly visited the United States on his travels and has been in Soviet prison for 17 months after having shot a high Soviet official, now confesses that three U.S. embassy members were his co-conspirators. In this case, the U.S. press would have paid close attention to the convenience of the confession to Soviet propaganda needs, to the 17-month delay in the naming of the Americans, and to the obvious possibility that Aja had been encouraged or coerced into revising his story. They would have focused intently on Aja's prison conditions, his visitors there, his amenability to a deal with his captors, and any evidence in his statements from other sources that he had been coached. The fact that Aja had visited the United States among 12 countries would not be considered strong evidence of CIA involvement and the press might even have pointed out that a minimally competent CIA would not have brought Aja to Washington for instructions in the first place. Unquote. Contained within this alternative model is a guide for applying the principles employed here to your wider consumption of news media. If the prevailing narrative about a major event is detrimental to your own nation's interests, what kind of questions would you want your media to ask? Whatever your answer, the standards you would apply here should be the standards you apply universally. No one can make themselves totally immune to propaganda, but the best you can do is to consciously identify that which a source assumes to be true without the need for proof and recognize your right to question and even reject these assumptions, provided you can make a strong case for it. In writing this episode, I read articles from the New York Times, from Newsday, from the Reader's Digest, and the magazine's reference just a few minutes ago. By far, the number one shared assumption between all these sources was the impossibility of Aja passing through Bulgaria without the knowledge of the Bulgarian government. 
When something is so widely agreed upon, it becomes common sense, and it's tempting to just accept it. But as Herman and Chomsky point out, Abdullah Kotli of the Grey Wolves testified in 85 that the Grey Wolves prefer to pass through Bulgaria specifically because it's easy to go unnoticed. Does this automatically mean everyone else was lying? Well, no. What it does mean is that a point of common sense is actually much more contentious than it has previously been presented, and that should strike you, especially when that contention would go against U.S. interests by protecting the image of its most notorious enemies. And that's, well, that's pretty much it. I had originally hoped to cover the entire second half of this book in one episode, but in order to do that, I would have had to summarize so heavily that I would have had to just regurgitate Herman and Chomsky's conclusions without showing their work or doing any research of my own. And that just didn't feel in the spirit of manufacturing consent. So instead, I'm going to keep taking it section by section, and together we can all build a set of critical analysis frameworks to apply to our own media consumption. And if we get confident enough, Maybe we'll go even further and try to apply what we've learned to some more recent events and see what interesting tendencies we can observe. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Regardless, the Vietnam War will be up next in this bonus series, but not before a new flagship episode with Alex and me, so stay tuned. If you want to support the show, the absolute best thing you can do is tell your friends, share our episodes on social media, and leave us positive reviews wherever you can. If you have thoughts on a recent episode, ideas for new subjects you'd like us to explore, or just want to shoot the shit about random lefty stuff with us, hit us up on Twitter at WeReadTheoryPod. We'd love to hear from you. And please stay safe, stay sane, practice social distancing. You all know the drill. We'll see you next time.